0: Hi guys, welcome to The Church Split. My name is Will. We have actually Jordan Farrier back with us today, much to popular demand. Uh, We actually also have a very special guest with us. But first, you guys know what we do here? We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge your status quo. That always needs challenging. Today, we are actually honored to have our very first Catholic guest on, actually. So we have Father Gregory Pine with us, and I'm excited to talk to him because we're gonna to talk to him about uh, a topic that many people don't know about, or they, uh, including myself, I don't know enough about it. Uh, and a lot of people misunderstand. We're gonna to talk to him about uh, divine simplicity so if you guys haven't already like and subscribe to the channel but with no further ado because i know his time is limited we're just going to jump right into it father gregory pine welcome to the channel how you doing
1: i'm doing well thanks uh as i was recounting before the show started um it's april in freeburg switzerland where i live and as is the custom in switzerland regardless of the month uh it's snowing and uh (laughs) I had a mass at a, at a neighboring town this morning and I decided to walk home, which was a good idea, I thought. And then I discovered that I was walking through like two, three, four, five, six, seven inches of snow at certain points. And then when I started hearing my toes squish in my shoes, I thought that I, <laughs> I ought to have picked another route. So, um, so I'm currently thawing out and drying out, but delighted to be here. Oh, well, I hope your thawing goes well. <laughs> um, so.
0: For any of our uh, listeners who are not familiar with you, because I think we have mostly an evangelical and Protestant kind of following, they might not be familiar with your work. So, could you tell people a little bit about yourself? Um, what even made you join? Uh, uh, being you know, being a father is no joke. That's a huge commitment. So, just tell us a little bit about yourself and where that came from.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so my name is Father Gregory Pine. I was born in or outside of Newtown, Pennsylvania, which is in southeastern Pennsylvania, just across the river from Trenton, New Jersey. And um yeah, I grew up in a kind of normal Catholic household, mom, dad, two sisters, younger brother. And uh like big thing growing up is daily prayer and um yeah, my 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 kind of family go-tos were mass, confession, which would be kind of Catholic particular. Uh and then prayer, reading scripture and then Uh, fasting. was like a family practice. So that would be kind of cradle of the faith. I went to a a little university in Ohio, which folks, some folks have heard about in in evangelical circles called Franciscan University of Steubenville. Um, So it's like, as my Protestant friends say, it's like Grove City, but not academically serious, Um, which is a joke, (laughs) which is a joke. There's some academic rigor going on there. Um, And while I was there, I um, encountered the life and the witness and the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas. And St. Thomas Aquinas was a 13th century Catholic saint. Many people have heard of him. Uh, he, he pertained to a religious order called the Order of Friars Preachers or the Dominican Order. It's called the Dominican Order because it was founded by another 13th century saint, St. Dominic de Guzman. Um, and so I was very struck by his witness. And I found like the way that he loved the Lord really resonated with me. So as a contemplative, but a contemplative dedicated to prayer and to study for the purpose of preaching the faith, uh, what I would describe as mystagogically, so kind of taking people by the hand and then leading them into the mysteries or kind of like unpacking for them the mysteries, which are in a certain sense already present in their life, in faith, in sacrament, etc. So I found that to be very beautiful. And um, so I, I entered the Dominican Order. I was ordained a priest in 2016. And along the way, th- interesting things that I've done, I was assigned in Kentucky, uh, it, in Louisville, Kentucky, where I taught at Bellarmine University. Uh, which is one of only four Catholic colleges in the whole state of Kentucky, because Kentucky is not known for its Catholic education. Um, and then after that, I worked for the Thomistic Institute in Washington, D.C., which is a research institute of our seminary, the Dominican House of Studies, which has a presence on a lot of college campuses, and it's probably best known for uh, Aquinas 101, which is an online video course, kind of te- teaching people the basics of St. Thomas's thought. And then since then, I've been assigned in Freiburg, Switzerland as a doctoral candidate, and I'm working Uh, in Christology, specifically the Christology of St. Thomas Aquinas. And then when it comes to side hustle, um, I've written a couple of books. The most recent one is called Prudence, Choose Confidently, Live Boldly, and it's available on Amazon for pre-order, and it'll be available for order on April 19th. So depending on when this airs, slash depending on whether or not time travel is invented in the interim, you can (laughs) buy it. and i contribute to two podcasts one is called pints with aquinas and i see the mug there on the table which is impressive yes. so kudos and then another one that's called god um g-o-d-s-p-l-a-i-n-i-n-g long long story as to the name but it's basically like the opposite of mansplaining so instead of condescending it's like a kind of divine condescension which is to say it's ennobling um So yeah, other things. God's planning. We're having retreats this summer to which you are all most cordially invited. They will be saturated in Catholic sacraments. So if that makes you nervous, maybe another retreat would be better. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, those are the those are the details. Those are the things.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Now, how old were you when you said you were ordained to the priesthood? Sorry, I asked. I would have been
1: twenty-seven. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. so I, I, I learned to shave, and then the next day I was ordained a priest.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: was there a, how long of a process does that normally take? Am I able to- So it, Yeah, it depends on what you've had before. It depends on when you start. But typically, it's between six and eight years um, okay. of formation. And the first year for a religious order is called the novitiate, which is like kind of learning religious life. And then it has some retreat-like aspects, right? So just a lot of dedicated time for prayer. And then also just like a lot of adventures and obedience. So you just do things because you're told to do things. Not sinful things, of course, but oftentimes mind-numbing or laborious things. And the idea is just kind of to get you in the habit of religious life. And then after that, you do basically seven years of academic study. So two years of philosophy, five years of theology. And if you've had some of those things beforehand, it can kind of trim a little bit. So at Steubenville, I had studied some things which were applicable. So it trimmed a little bit. And here we are.
0: Nice, well good to know. So um, with that being said, now it sounds like you might be a pretty big fan of Thomas Aquinas. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's a safe bet. Uh, so, and also now that I see the pints of Aquinas mug next to our mug, I feel like mine is vastly insuperior and I'm a little upset about that, but that's okay. So uh, <laughs> with that being said, could you tell people, now we're talking about divine simplicity. This is something mm-hmm. that uh, Thomas Aquinas talked about. Um, and there's been diff- there's different takes on divine simplicity, which is actually what makes it kind of a difficult thing for people to kind of wrestle with, because depending who you look up, there could be uh, an Augustinian version, versus a Thomist version versus other versions. So what is divine simplicity uh, from a Thomistic perspective?
1: Yeah, so I like, I love stage setting because I feel like when you take a doctrine in isolation, sometimes it introduces into the conversation certain kind of like misunderstandings or certain uh, misprisions. So I like to kind of set things up. So for instance, St. Thomas wrote the Summa Theologiae, which was his masterwork, and he would have been working on that during the last years of his life. So he was born in 1224, 1225-ish, we're not sure, Um, and he enters the order in like 1244, 1245, and then he goes to Cologne and then to Paris, where he does all of his initial studies, and then he starts teaching as a professor of theology in 1256, which is when he does his like first survey of theology, which was his commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard. And over the course of his life, you know, he has maybe something like 75, 80 published works. But the Summa Theologia is the one that he's working on when he sets down his pens at the end of his life just before he dies. And so at the beginning of the Summa, he says, here, I'm going to try to explain theology in a way that's um, not simply meaningful content wise, but also meaningful uh, structure wise. Right. I want to I want to arrange it pedagogically so that it's most easily learned because it actually corresponds to the realities as they are articulated. So I want to spell out for you reality as it's revealed to us by God in a way that is most easily assimilated. So you can think about the Summa Theologiae as a kind of extension of the work of the incarnation, insofar as our Lord Jesus Christ kind of spells out God's interior life in a way that is most easily assimilated. Um, so when we you know, start reading the Summa Theologiae, we see a kind of deliberate purpose in the way in which St. Thomas you know, sets out each question vis-a-vis, the neighboring questions are within a particular treatise. And so divine simplicity comes right at the beginning of the Summa Theologiae. Uh, The first part is an extended meditation on God, one and three, Uh, meditation on creation, and then evil is a kind of subordinate consideration within that context. And then he kind of articulates creation as immaterial, holy immaterial, you know, the angels, and then holy material, right? So like animals, plants, and below, and then man, And so then he goes through an extended treatise on man before returning to the divine governance. So that's the general map of the first part. But for him, theology is a consideration of God and all things in light of God. So he could have written a theology textbook that ends after Prima Pars, question 43, because he would have treated God, which is the principal object of all theological study. So, that, which is a challenge to us in the 21st century because a lot of people approach theological questions with, like, the disposition of how can I use this or how can I deploy this or what type of advocacy does this inspire or how I, I to vindicate rights in light of this fact. When for St. Thomas, it's like, no, no, let's just look at God. And then having looked at God, he'll give us indication as to what comes next. And it might be nothing. He might say, enter a monastery and think about me until, you know, I come back. It's like, okay, cheers. Uh, or it might be something. He might be like, you know, be of service to the material poor in a way that's really, really concrete and intense. And you're like, party on. Okay. So the, the consideration of divine simplicity happens in the context of his treatment of the Godhead. So, specifically, questions two through 26 on the one God. And everyone knows question two because it's whether God exists, on Deus sit. And that comes in three articles, right? And the third article is the five ways. So that's like the text of St. Thomas that, that everyone knows best. But the very next article is the first article of the question dedicated to divine simplicity. So for him, he's progressing along the lines of an Aristotelian science where he says, first we prove that the thing is, and then we show what the thing is insofar as we can. In the case of God, we're always arguing back to God from effects, so we're arguing from effects to a cause. And so our knowledge of that cause is limited on account of the fact that effects are never adequate to the cause. So when St. Thomas proceeds in questions three through 11 to go through simplicity, perfection, goodness, infinity, um, eternity, immutability, omnipresence, and unity, what he's effectively doing is ruling things out. He's circumscribing a space in which we can expect to find God. He's basically saying he's not this, he's not that, he's not the other thing. All right, so when he says he's immutable, he says he's not changing. When he says he's u- you know, unified, he's saying he's not divided. When he says he's eternal, he's saying he's not time bound. And when it comes to simplicity, I just gave the longest answer to a potentially easy question, which is my <laughs> won't, but alas. This
2: is fantastic.
1: All right, here we go. So when, yeah. he talk, when, he's, when he describes divine simplicity, he's saying that there is no mode of division in God. So God is in no wise composed of parts. God is in no wise divided. So that is effectively what he is proving in Prima Pars, Question 3, Articles 1 through 8.
0: That was actually very good. Right.
2: I, so, so that explains why... He says that we know God by remotion, by by removal, right? So there's there's no division, so it's unity. He's not contained, so he's infinite. Is that?
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's part of it. So, so like um, after those initial survey of questions, questions three through eleven, which are the kind of classic remotion questions, he devotes another two questions to like how we know God and how we name God, questions 12 and 13. And it's in that where he talks about what he calls the triplex via of pseudo-Dionysius, which is this threefold way by which we rise to the knowledge of God. And he says the most foundational way is causality. We know that God is, and in a certain sense, what God is by virtue of the fact that we reason back to God from the effects that we observe in the world. So you like, that's kind of the ground floor of what we're doing here, which is effectively natural theology. Okay, so, um, you know, it's a longer discussion as to whether or not we can know God, um, you know, like prescinding from grace or apart from grace. In the Catholic tradition, at the First Vatican Council, it's solemnly defined that we can know God by natural reason, all right, in a certain limited way, in a kind of attenuated way, even. But we can know that God exists, right, at the very least. St. Thomas will say, though, that it often entails like long, hard labor, the admixture of many errors. And it's the type of thing that only the wise will arrive at. So God in his infinite goodness condescends to reveal himself so that all of us, you know, with our limited capacity for for knowledge, for reasoning, can come to a knowledge and love of he on whom our eternal destiny depends. So the the, the ground floor is causality. But St. Thomas says whenever you talk causality, there's a kind of tendency towards a certain conceptual idolatry. Where you say, like, you know what, I really like this Swiss form of, like, <laughs> delicacy, which is called a canoper. and um, it's great, you know, it's just got, like, the, I don't know what you would even call that cookies, but it's like some chocolate, some jet puff, blah, 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 and thus and such. Um, this is good, and God, who gives existence to all things good, must be like this canoper. St. time, it says, whoa, 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 pump the brakes you just really love canopers, so now you're worshiping at the altar of canoper and you're attributing that to God on account of the fact that you're not willing to do the type of intellectual work to purify your understanding of God from certain limitations. So he says we need to follow next the way of remotion, all right, or the way of negation. And in that we say, but he's not like the goodness that we encounter this side of eternity, in the sense that he doesn't suffer its creaturely limitation. So, you know, like, and and we encounter that limitation in all sorts of ways. So for instance, I just drank a cup of coffee and I would say this coffee was good or is good. All right. But even in that sentence, I'm saying this coffee is good. I'm connecting coffee with goodness as if by a kind of conjunction, as if by a kind of association. But, but when I say that, I'm saying that like goodness doesn't, doesn't necessarily pertain to coffee by right. Like I could, I could drink bad coffee. Like a lot of people in Switzerland just serve hot water and then they put some little like whatever you call that, instant coffee next to it, and they're like, coffee. And I'm like, no, that's potential (laughs) trauma, okay? We have a different understanding as to what constitutes coffee. Um, Whereas with God, it's not as if you can say simply like God is good and think about that in the same way that we think about coffee because God doesn't like, you know, like draw to himself goodness. God subsists in goodness, right? God is goodness. God exhausts all that there is of goodness, so whenever we do this type of work when thinking about God, we need to remove from our understanding certain limitations, which is to say, we need to acknowledge the fact that we're thinking about something that transcends our minds, and we're thinking about it with those minds, all right? So are we going to be like able to wholly transcend our limitations? No, all right? Because God wills that we encounter him within the context of these limitations. So they're not bad. They're just, they just are. They're the, they're the hand that we're dealt. So uh, the kind of final move then for this triplex via is what St. Thomas calls the V of the via eminencia or the way of eminence or preeminence or supereminence, which is to say we recognize that God is like this thing, this good thing well, when we 've set aside the creaturely limitations, we want to say further that he's he 's beyond this good thing he 's like this thing in a way that transcends this good thing he 's like this way excuse me he 's like this good thing in a way that's that 's more good in a way that's more principled, in a way that's more full than this good thing, all right? So, like I would say, my dad, for instance, Barry Pine, is a really good man, all right? And so he, he is, before my eyes, is a kind of icon of fatherhood. But, you know, like, I, I can say that, that God is a good father by kind of reasoning on this effect of God's love and goodness in my life, all right? But I want to remove from it certain limitations that I experience with respect to earthly fathers. But then I want to say, like, you know, fatherhood pre-exists in God in its most excellent form, in its most pure form, in its most, what would you say, in its most true form, okay? So that would be the threefold way, which I also explained for way too many minutes. So that's, that's the kind of conceptual, like, therapy or ground clearing that we're doing when we make these types of judgments.
2: So <clears throat> when, it, when it comes to divine simplicity, um, the way I understand it, Um, or at least the way that, like Norman Geisler explains it, is that um, Parmenides, who was before, well he was alive at the same time as Aristotle, I believe, is that there is only being and non-being. And that um, Plato and Socrates were trying to solve that puzzle of how God can be, well they would say the gods, how the gods are separate from the creatures And Aquinas used Aristotle to say that um, God being absolutely simple, um, and there's no potentiality in God, potential for change, whereas everything that God creates has potentiality.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So when we think of, that there's no potentiality in God, there's no potential for change, then people think that God is immobile or static. But that's not what Aquinas said. He said that, so that's kind of one of the first things you have to, in my mind, is that um, you, you think of God as a being, and Aquinas explains that, correct? That God is non-corporeal, mm-hmm. he's spirit, um, he's not, not flesh or or material is that correct yeah okay and then he says that god is incomprehensible in his essence so his essence his essence is his existence and that's incomprehensible um, but god is a being and then god has attributes am i good so far yeah yeah killing it okay and then the attributes as you were explaining about your father We know the attributes of God by remotion, by removal, and by analogy. So when Jesus says that God is our Father, we know by analogy of our own Father um, what that means. So when you have the attributes of God, um, so God is um, omnipotent, omniscient, love, etc., that Um, God's will comes from his attributes. So, God is a being, he's spirit, he's incomprehensible in his essence, his essence is his his existence. We conceive of him as his attributes, which are all one. And his will comes from his attributes. So, then we have to think um, that, of the attributes of God that are proper to his nature prior to creation. So God is justice and God is love. But we wouldn't say that wrath and mercy, I think mercy, are attributes because before God created a creature to be angry with, there wasn't any wrath, right? So before there was sin, there was nothing for God to be wrathful to hate. Um, so, um, so when when we say that God is all of His attributes simultaneously, wrath is not an attribute. So it's not like God is always angry, and God is always merciful. You, you know, He's these contradictory things. He can't be those things all at once because it, does that make sense? Because those aren't attributes.
1: <clears throat> yeah. No. There's there's a there's a lot there to respond to. Um, So with respect to the first, uh, yeah, I like the way that you set it up. So you have this kind of debate among the pre-Socratic philosophers as to whether it's a conscious debate is debated. Um, But you have on the one side, uh, like Parmenides, right, the monists, as it were. And then on the other side, you have Heraclitus, who argues that everything is flux. So there's a kind of hyper-stability on the one hand, and then a kind of hyper-instability on the other hand, both of whom are trying to figure out how you account for change. And so the one is to deny change and say that change is only apparent, and the other is to reduce everything to change and say that stability is only apparent, or kind of substantiality is only apparent. And this is what Plato and Aristotle kind of work out when it comes to, like you said, potency. This idea that there's non-being and being, but a kind of middle category, as it were, to speak somewhat crassly, is potency, which which names those things that you can be, right, but aren't yet. So I, for instance, have certain potencies. Um, I'm in potential to, you know, suffering a knee injury, but I'm not in potential to becoming a like a, a radiator, all right? So there's, there's no agent who can take me from being, you know, Gregory Pine to being a radiator, all right, in, in any meaningful sense. But there is an agent who can take me from being, you know, like, you know, Possessed of some kind of bodily integrity to being possessed of less bodily integrity and that agent is me because I am reckless and stupid Um, (laughs) So so that that identifies a thing in me, right? Which isn't yet fully realized or actualized but is and so when we talk about potency, all right, we're talking about a kind of category in created being for further realization or for for further actualization and so when st. Thomas talks about the divine simplicity he, he effectively removes from our consideration of God any potency, all right? So, like you said, the first thing that he takes on is whether or not God is a body or has a body. And he says no, because a body always entails potency. On account of the fact that I have a body, all right, I am in potency to having, you know, magic marker written on the back of my hand if I go to some venue, you know, which would probably be like a club. And my clubbing days, not only are they over, but they never begin. Um, all right? So... So, I, like, if you have a body, you're always potentially subject to corporeal changes. So he says, nope, nope, certainly not the case. But then St. Thomas goes through a bunch of other categories which, which relate, like, act and potency. And so he goes through, like, substance and accidents. He goes through, act and potency, just kind of broadly speaking. He goes through, like you said, essence and existence. And he removes that all from God. And, and the definition that he arrives at is just like you said, that God's very nature, God's very essence is to be. All right? So God... He describes his ipsum esse per se subsistence. So ipsum itself, esse, to be, all right, which also names the octus ascendi, the act of being. So, like, it's very difficult to describe on account of the fact that I don't understand it well. Um, A lot of times people are like, very difficult to explain. You you couldn't (laughs) follow. But when I say it's very difficult (laughs) to explain, it means I have no idea what I'm trying to say. Um, All right, so so, so God's very nature is to be, which is to say God exhausts all that there is of to be. So there's no to be that falls without the bounds of the divine life, okay? So we participate God's being, as it were. We kind of have God's being on loan in a way that St. Thomas explains that saves him from the criticism of pantheism or panentheism, because there's a real integrity to created being on account of the form that God imparts to each individual creature, but it has that being from God. So it's, it's only proper to God that his very nature is to be. So, so God's to be doesn't come from elsewhere. Whereas in the case of everything else, it's to be does come from elsewhere. So we have being, as it were, on loan, not in the sense that our being is like, well, you know, like might not be tomorrow. I mean, that's true in a certain sense, but it has a kind of stability. Right. But it's still contingent in the sense that it doesn't explain itself. The principles of our nature aren't sufficient to explain the fact that we are. This is the thing that Heidegger meditates on the 20th century, like that there is something as a kind of marvelous fact when there could not have been anything. So in light of this fact, like you said, St. Thomas has a way of understanding the divine attributes as all identified with the divine nature. And so he goes through them. I mentioned, you know, questions three through 11, but then he continues on the other side of those two questions dedicated to divine names and divine knowledge or knowledge of God. So with 14, he starts with the divine knowledge. All right. And, and for him, immateriality just kind of breaks forth in intellectuality. So, so having grounded the fact that God is immaterial and transcendent in the way that he has, He says God is intellectual, and then he talks about the divine ideas, which are the ways in which God knows himself to be participatable, which helps to make sense of, uh, you know, created reality, and then he talks about truth and falsity and divine life, and then from there he talks about the divine will, and so for him, the divine will is immediately attendant upon the divine intellect, all right? So on account of the fact that God is intellectual, he is volitional, because intellect, right, Um, kind of begets a certain tendency unto the thing that it understands, all right? So for for our experience, it's like when we cognize something that corresponds to our nature, we have a desire for it, right? We have an intellectual appetite for it or a will for it. In God's case, it's different because God lacks for nothing. So God doesn't experience indigence or need, but God does kind of spontaneously break forth into volition on account of the fact that he cognizes, all right? Um, and then on the basis of God's will, he goes on to discuss, like you said, justice, mercy, love. Well, I guess it's in that order to be love, justice, mercy, divine providence, predestination. And then he talks about the implications of predestination with the book of life and then the power of God and then the beatitude of God. So all of those for him are kind of divine attributes, although they they're attributes in, in distinct senses. Uh, and so it's interesting. You mentioned mercy. Okay, so St. Augustine describes mercy as the recognition of the miserable state of another and then the kind of pity which moves one to rectify that state. So St. Thomas says, whoop, we have to remote pity from God because pity is true of an embodied being, right? So, so pity, properly speaking, describes a passion or an emotion. But we do identify in God this kind of movement, as it were, towards the rectification of a miserable state because God, he identifies this with God's love or with God's power, Okay. And he says, this, this is already present in God prior to creation in his active potency, which means that like God is poised for the doing of things in a way that doesn't um, make it such that God changes, right? So we don't wanna say that God changes, but it's, it's present there in principle. It's present there uh, in a kind of wellspring or fount. And then when it comes to wrath, St. Thomas will actually say that wrath is attributed to God metaphorically, all right? So it doesn't name something properly in God like with analogical discourse, uh, because wrath describes a kind of, you know, like as it's understood, it describes a kind of emotion or a kind of passion, which does have volitional elements. But first, it names something in the sense appetite, and because God doesn't have a body. God doesn't have wrath in that way. And so he'll kind of purify it of certain notions which are proper to the literary genre that it's described in in the sacred scriptures. And he'll say, like, what is this describing in God? Right, It's manifested in this way. The sacred author receives it in this way. That's true, right? Um, but in God, we want to remove from it certain impurities or certain imperfections, which would call into question the divine simplicity or call into question the divine perfection. And so he'll identify it with a kind of power, active potency, something along similar lines. So that's, uh, that's like kind of the broad sweep of the whole treatise on the one God.
2: Yeah, that's helpful. So, yeah, let me just touch on a couple things. Um, so you're you you were saying about God upholding all so upholding all things. So those are there's a couple of scripture verses that talk about that that we get our being from God because God up, up I can't think of the verse off the top of my head but God upholds all things. Um and then he says God is pure actuality and that there is no motion in God, which is I th- I think that that's a that's a problem for people too that you know that I've like listened in on their conversations (laughs) that they think God is immobile but what I understand him to be saying that there is no motion in God is that God doesn't move from passive potency to actuality because God is pure actuality so God Hmm. is always in act so if if I can explain that and then you can tell me if I'm explaining it correctly or not yeah so um, like, the, the Kalam Cosmological Argument says, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Time, space, and matter began to exist. Um, so God must be outside of time, space, and matter. And, and that's how those things began to exist. So I, yeah, I think that that kind of explains that God is in eternity, not in time, as you said and then because God is what we say outside of time, as I think Boethius and Aquinas and C.S. Lewis all say, that he sees the whole simultaneously, which means that he's omniscient, so he knows all things. And he's in the, because he is pure actuality, he is always in the act of knowing all things. So, because there's no passive potency in God, it's not like He, and no, He's, there's no motion from potency to actuality or actuality to potency. It's not like God forgets how far it is from the moon to the earth, and then He remembers it. Because He's always in the act of knowing the distance between the earth and the moon. He's always in the act of knowing your name, my name, you know, all of those things. So, the, the, that helped me with understanding that god isn't static or God isn't mm-hmm. immobile because he's always he's pure actuality he 's always in the act of knowing everything. Is that correct so far absolutely okay, so then um when it comes to impassibility, help me know if I am explaining this correctly yeah, yeah. because there is because God is love, um he loves unconditionally. So there's nothing that I can do that will make God love me more. There's nothing I can do that will make God love me less because God is always in the act of loving me unconditionally and there's no passive potency in God where I can do something that will move God from the potency of loving me to the actuality of loving me because he is always in the act of loving me, which is why we would say that God is impassable. Is that
0: correct?
1: That is correct, yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> I'm just hanging out. I'm like over here, just watching the, you guys flex your brain muscles, and I'm good. Oh <laughs> man, well, gonna... this
2: is this is the kind of stuff that I think about, and I need somebody to ask. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so it's so good to have somebody that I could, you know, that I can talk to and make sure that I'm that I'm
0: understanding these things correctly. Yeah. Um. So I, I have a question while you're getting another question yeah. ready. Um, so I already know that some of my friends who are going to have a more of a uh, what we would say a dynamic omniscient view of God, yeah. um, are going to ask some questions regarding this because when you said like, you know, there is no past potency in God, um, he's pure actuality, he doesn't change, um, the, uh, and like, it's not like he forgets, like you said, the distance from the earth to the moon. Right. So then what do, what, what would your response, um be when it comes to saying things in scripture where it's like he yeah, remembered so and so and engage there yeah let me
2: let me take that up just a second before Father oh okay Brother do your response thing. so the way i understand you, you probably haven't heard of dynamic omniscience in the way that's been explained so in in uh summa contra is it gentiles or how do you say that summa contra.
1: Uh, people often say gentiles
2: Gentiles? Yeah. Yeah,
1: When in doubt with a Latin word, stress the second to last syllable.
2: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) see. That is no lie. Yeah, Yeah, sometimes it changes, but but that's a good rule of thumb. Like this when I say summa contra gentiles. Yeah, Yeah. well, there's a kind (laughs) of anti-American
1: thing about pronouncing any foreign language word, you know, like with a proper accent. For whatever reason, we as Americans kind of esteem ourselves on the assimilative power of our culture. It's like Notre Dame University. I dare you to correct
2: me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's Detroit, Michigan, instead of Detroit. Right, yeah, That's right, no Detroit. Okay, so in in Sima Contra Gentiles, um, Aquinas says that the knowledge of God does not remove contingency. So, when, so here's how I think of it. If I walk past my, my son's bedroom and it's a mess, I can like go beat him right now, or mm. I can go say to him, You can go clean up your room and you have an hour. You know, we, we make some sort of agreement about cleaning up his cleaning up his room. I, I set before you today good and evil. <laughs> you know, <laughs> make your choice. A blessing are and a you curse? Right. Are you gonna go downstairs and play video games? Or are you gonna go up and clean your room, make your choice, I'll be back in an hour. Uh, if you decide to play video games with your friends, there's gonna be a beating. If you decide to clean up your room, I'll give you this reward of $20. The, what my son decides to do is contingent upon his choice, even though I know with certainty which one he is going to do. If I I know for certain he's gonna go play video games and I'm gonna have to give him a spanking when I get home, you know, from the grocery store, even my knowing that does not remove contingency. So, when he makes his choice, and I deal out the consequences, I didn't change my mind. But I did, you know, I hate to say respond, but I did, because God acted, he gave the contingent choice to me I made the choice and then God acted um, not I'm not exactly sure how to say that am I am I tracking and can you explain yeah, so, that better?
1: no that's I think that's a good image it's a good illustration um, and it also gives you a good jumping-off point for making certain distinctions between human agency and divine agency so in your case, what you have is a highly probabilistic knowledge, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. you're you're guessing, but you're guessing on the basis of a lot of data, right? And a pretty intimate knowledge of your son's dispositions. Um, so that gives you a, qua- a kind of quasi-certainty, but it's not absolute certainty because it's still right. based in the practical order with contingent matters. In the case of God, so God... Doesn't, doesn't know as if one at or remove by a kind of probabilistic knowledge with a quasi-certainty. God knows as the cause of our being and of our agency. And a good text for this is, um, I want to say it's De Potencia, Question 3, Article 7, which talks about like a fourfold way in which God is present in human agency, as, as creating us to be and as conserving us in being, and as creating us to act and as conserving us in action. So God is the cause of our being, And is the cause of our acting. But God causes us to be as contingent free creatures and causes us to act as contingent free creatures. And so God's, it's actually an expression of God's power and of God's sovereignty that he creates in such a way that he makes it so that the things created will tend towards their end by the principles proper to that creature. So a kind of good patristic source for this is St. Severinus Boethius, his description in the Consolation of Philosophy about the divine eternity, which is a source text for St. Thomas that he returns to with with frequency. But this idea that God knows and that God disposes, but in such a way that affords liberty to free creatures, namely angels and men. Um, And so it's rather than being a, a kind of limitation to the divine power, it's an expression of the divine power. And you can you can run this on the order like in the order of nature or in the order of grace.
2: Right. And yeah, I forget where it is, but he does he, he doesn't say that we have free will, but he says that we have, I think, free choice in yeah, yeah. Summa Contra Gentiles. I, I I couldn't put my finger on it immediately like you can. Yeah, I mean, I'm over here like
0: he just cited three sources to the paragraph. I am. Yeah, so I'm going to see myself essence, out. I am not equipped yeah. for this conversation. Not yeah, either, right. being
2: in essence, is the one that I've told you to read.
0: So for <laughs> when it comes I mean, to seminary, choice, bro, yeah. I got a lot well, of reading yeah. going on. You gave me a book this thick. You're like, hey, Will, here's a gift. I'm like, that's going to take some time. Yeah, <laughs> keep going. So, I'm so, sorry.
1: In the Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas treats free choice, or or what he calls election, in two main places. So in the Prima Pars, question 83, and then in Prima Secunda, question 13. But the the source text for that is St. Augustine. So De Libra Arbitrio is a kind of, it's not just a nod or just a reverential exposition, but it's it's really worked its way into the tradition. St. Thomas also draws some of his language from St. John Damascene. I mean, so he's doing kind of Latin equivalents of Greek loans, but he has John Damascene's De Fide Orthodoxa in front of him as it's been transmitted to the Latin West. Um, And St. John Damascene is mediating a lot of uh, St. Maximus the Confessor as well, who has a lot to say about free choice. The place where St. Thomas gets into the most detail about the implications of choice and our liberty is actually in De Malo. And I wanna say it's in question six, uh, because that's a really mature disputed question. And the Summa at the end of the day is a summary but St. Thomas just cuts loose in the disputed questions. He goes to absolute town. Um, so the questions which get you, or the articles which get you like three objections and three responses in the summa, you get like 30 like objections and responses in, the, in some of the disputed questions. You're like, let's go, baby. Let me drink from this font until such time as God chooses to call me home.
2: <laughs> yeah. That, um, the what um, Aquinas got from Augustine and his on the predestination of the saints—that's yeah. that's where I would disagree with with Augustine and, and Aquinas. That's one of the few spots um, you disagree with Aquinas on baptism. Is that correct? In on, what in, sense? An infant baptism?
1: Um, I don't think so.
2: I know you, you. I watched you and, and uh, Matt Frad discuss, and I remember there was something, but I couldn't remember what, where you said there was something that you disagreed with Aquinas on. I mean, it's not a big deal.
1: Yeah, I don't remember um, offhand. I mean, I know that I disagree with Aquinas on the Immaculate Conception. Um, if, if there's been a doctrinal pronouncement that contradicts Aquinas, I'm pretty sure of that because of the way that you know, I think in the context of the Catholic Church. Um, my dogmatic slumber. Uh, but but apart from that i always feel myself on very very uncertain ground if i ever tend to think other than so uh yeah i don't know what, exactly what it would mean or what it would entail with respect to baptism but i can't think of it offhand
2: oh, okay yeah and i might just be a i'm
0: old and not a smart man so <laughs> my favorite part so, so jordan says i am not a smart man probably 40 times a day. He says, I'm not a smart man, but then he'll go on and talk about metaphysics for the next 30 minutes. I'm like, sure, okay, buddy. (laughs) I'm not a smart man, but let me talk to you. Let me flex my brain.
2: Well, I know there's been a lot of things in the past that I was wrong about, so that's why I say it,
0: because I know I make mistakes. It's a humble thing, I appreciate that, actually. Um, so yeah, I, I'll, back to one of my questions here, uh, as far as what I was saying before. So when you say that God doesn't, re, you know, God doesn't remember or God, and we see God like interact directly, I would just like to have somebody who holds to divine simplicity to just respond to that. Cause, uh, there's, uh, is it like kind of an anthropomorphism or how, how would you explain that?
2: Yeah, it's metaphorical instead of not anthropomorphic.
1: I want to let you know that I just ate two Flintstones complete vitamins. <laughs> um, Hopefully not on an are empty delicious. stomach. Those things yeah, upset no. my
2: stomach if I didn't eat something else.
1: Oh, they're <laughs> so good. I don't know what it is about the Flintstones ones. They really get me. Okay. Uh, I've had yeah, this so, as a child. <laughs> so, so St. Thomas talks about you know scriptural interpretation in a variety of places in a, in a pretty deliberate fashion. And it's beautiful when he does. Uh, it's, it's often said that the medieval master, St. Thomas, was minted a master of theology in 1256 and held teaching posts for the rest of his life, which would have been for another 17, 18 years. Um, but so his first responsibility as a medieval master was Lectio, and then his next was Disputatio, and then his final was Predicatio. So you start in the reading of Scripture, you dispute. So like the whole dialectical method is a way by which of interpreting sacred Scripture. Um, and then Predicatio, ultimately it's meant... Uh, for or it's destined for a kind of continuation of God's revelatory act in the context of liturgical preaching for the enlightenment and salvation of those to whom the word is addressed. So we have quite a few of St. Thomas's sermons, and some of them are beautiful. There's like testimony that St. Thomas would weep when he preached, specifically in his native tongue when he would go to Naples. He was from Roccaseca, which is just outside of Napola. And um, yeah, like he would, he would like weep in professing the faith or in giving, giving voice to it. Um, So, yeah, when it comes to the interpretation of sacred scripture, one of the greatest or kind of simplest texts is Prima Pars*, question one, article seven. And, uh, yes, St. Thomas is sensitive to literary genre and in in a way that actually corresponds a lot with what the kind of contemporary Catholic magisterium, which is our way of referring to doctrinal pronouncements that come, you know, like Pope bishops and are certainly kind of made in a way that's recognizably authorial or recognizably Mm -hmm. Um, what would you say, magisterial? Uh, so in the way in which the, um, the modern magisterium has kind of given voice to its understanding of sacred scripture since like Leo XIII and enshrined in a particular way at the Second Vatican Council and Dei Verbum, there's this sensitivity to literary genre. Um, and so St. Thomas will say, uh, he'll, he'll often say that Moses was speaking to a rude people. <laughs> this is one of his go-to lines for describing why uh, specifically the first five books of the Bible, which St. Thomas attributes to Mosaic authorship. He says, like, why they reveal the way in which they reveal. He says it's because he's speaking to a rude people. And so he accommodates him with language, with images, with speech, uh, which is most easily recognized or most easily assimilated by a rude people. Um, and, and rude, he's not saying, like, they're, they're impolite, but that they're not especially refined. Um, And so St. Thomas will say this when it comes to a lot of, you know, scriptural interpretation will entail that we have to do some work on what is in effect metaphorical speech. Um, And so we need to be able to mine that metaphorical speech for the kind of, you know, like faith based or doctrinal pronouncement, which is present within. And that doesn't mean that we just like throw the metaphorical speech away as if it were like desiccated husks, Um, but that we go through it. You know, we, we kind of wed ourselves to the word and the way in which the word wed himself to this type of speech as a way by which uh, of gaining access to the Godhead that lies hidden within. So when God says, you know, like I repent of the deed that I thought at first, or I swear by myself and stuff like that, it's not because God is changeable. It's because God is accommodating himself to our reception with the type of speech, which we're better able to, to assimilate.
2: That that would be like me repenting of punishing my son. If he did clean his room. Correct. Yeah. So it's not that I changed or that I changed my mind. It's that, I gave you had a plan,
1: which 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 you know took account of your free will, and which showed itself supple or pliant uh, in the face thereof, right? So the chances of that happening were exceedingly small, but you had a contingency <laughs> for it,
2: right? Okay, so I have another question for you. Nice. Okay, so and um, so let me just read you these quotes. This is uh, SCG Book One, Chapter Eighty Seven. Aquinas says though the foregoing is to set aside the error of certain persons who said that all things proceed from God according to his simple will, which means that we are not to give an explanation of anything except that God wills it. Mm -hmm. Um, And he says, just as divine providence does not wholly exclude evil from things, so also it does not exclude contingency or impose necessity on things. Um, It would be incompatible then with divine providence to which the establishment and preservation of order in things belongs, if all things came about as a result of necessity. Um, The divine will does not remove contingency from things, nor does it impose absolute necessity on them. And from what has been said, it can be shown that God cannot will evil. So then let me read, so like John Calvin says, it would be utterly absurd to hold that anything could be done contrary to the will of God. Um, And then C.S. Lewis, if you do not take the distinction between good and bad very seriously, then it is easy to say that anything you find in this world is a part of God. But of course, if you think something's really bad and God really good, then you cannot talk like that. You must believe that God is separate from the world and that some of the things we see in it are contrary to his will. So, we, I mean, I would say that things happen. It, it just, it seems bizarre to me that we would say that God wills evil and when you do the evil, it is a sin because that would mean that you are sinning when you do the will of God. Mm-hmm. So if there is sin in the world, you must be doing something that is contrary to the will of God. Um, So I would say that Calvin is wrong, that nothing can be done contrary to the will of God. Is that, I mean, am I tracking with that or are you tracking with me on that?
1: I'm tracking with you, yeah. Okay, Um,
2: so then, yeah, go ahead and then I have another question.
1: The typical move is to introduce a distinction within the will of God, as it were. And so uh, you'll hear it sometimes described as perfect and permissive will, or you'll hear it described as antecedent and consequent will, the latter of which distinctions is the one that St. Thomas uses, and he gets it from St. John Damascene, and that's described in Prima Pars question 19. Um, And we could go into that if you care to, but you have another follow-up, so I'll let you just go. Yeah,
2: well, I have have a follow-up to that too. So (laughs) that, that seems to me to be the difference between Augustine and Aquinas, that... Like, if we think of the creation of Adam, if I'm understanding Aquinas correctly, he would say that God is good. So when he created Adam, he made Adam good. And it was um, what we call free will, the ability to, to sin. Um, you know, He said, you're permitted to eat from any tree, but you're forbidden to eat from this tree, which was how he gave Adam free will, that free will was a good gift. Because God is good. So any gift that God gives is good. Um, and then Augustine, my understanding is that because, as Chesterton um, explains in his book about Aquinas, that Augustine had a Neoplatonist view of God, that God gave Adam the gift of free will because God has a will of permission. Mm. And I, so I would... You know, there's no place in scripture that says that God has a will of permission. It says that God has a perfect will. Mm -hmm. So if God is perfect, his will is perfect. Um, I mean, Calvin even said Adam was perfect and could do perfectly. So if God is good, free will was a good gift. That was why God gave Adam the gift of free will. It wasn't because God has a will of permission. So, yeah, I don't like the will of permission thing. Um, Like, I know Aquinas says, everything, um, even evil, takes place by God's permission, that, uh, boy, I have the quote, I can't find it right away, but he says that all things take place by the permission of God, but I think, in my opinion, that's like uh, an Augustinian influence, and what he really means is that because God upholds all things, that everything moves from potency to act has to be upheld by god that god makes evil possible not that god is giving permission to evil does does that make sense am i on the right track or
1: i, th- I think that your your reading could be defended as a reading of saint thomas aquinas i have a i've seven things to say and i'll say them quickly. <laughs> first yeah. i'm not a scholar of saint augustine uh, except okay. augustine's reception in aquinas and Chesterton is also not a scholar of Augustine, so I would say that too. So I would say, I'm not exactly sure, um, but I would say that De Liber Arbitrio uh, would be a good place in which to find a kind of Augustinian theory on the matter. When it comes to St. Thomas on evil, one of the most compact and excellent treatments is in you know Prima Pars question 48 and 49 in the Treatise on Creation. And there, he makes it clear that evil is not and is not caused. And for him, that's not an evasion, but that is his reception of the Augustinian tradition. So if evil is privatio boni, all right, then strictly speaking, it doesn't have a metaphysical status. It names a conspicuous lack of a metaphysical status. And when he does a causal analysis on it, he says, so the material cause is the only thing that we can pin down with any certainty because it adheres in an act. Here we're speaking about moral evil. St. Thomas doesn't have a problem attributing to God a certain causality in the matter of physical evil or natural evil. He says, for instance, God wills this world. He doesn't will it as the best possible world. He just wills it as this world. And in this world, there are carnivores and herbivores. And carnivores and herbivores eat other animals, right? Mm -hmm. It seems to be the case that in a material world, one thing is going to build itself up by the destruction of another thing. And that doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that it is this thing and that it manifests God's glory. Um, in this particular way. Could it be improved upon? Yes, but God willed this one. There are reasons for which that we can kind of mine by our reading of the sacred scripture, but it's not for us to say that this is the ideal arrangement. It's for us to say that we can appreciate a certain goodness in this arrangement. So in that, like the Buddhist objection fails, like, isn't it God's responsibility to minimize suffering? No, it's God's responsibility to be God. All right. God doesn't have responsibility vis-a-vis another because there is no holder of a higher right. And so when God expresses himself in creation, it's for the sake of manifestation. It's for the sake of glory. All right. And that's what we see. And if you're going to make a material universe, it just seems always to be the case that one thing is going to build itself up by the destruction of another. Um, But then when it comes to moral evil, like I said, you can identify a material cause insofar as a moral evil inheres in a human act. But you can identify a formal cause because a privation is a lack of form nor can you identify a final cause because sin is a kind of madness. St. Thomas doesn't put it in those terms, but he says that what you have as a final cause is a good end, but the good end is pursued um, in a kind of disorder or it's not pursued vis-a-vis other good ends in the proper way. So it has for its end a good, but it, it, it doesn't take account of the whole. And then when it comes to an efficient cause, he says there is no efficient cause of evil. It's a kind of deficient causality. It's the failure to uphold or the failure to affirm a higher good. So so evil, taken on its own terms, is not and is not caused. So when it comes to exculpating God, there's no problem there for St. Thomas. And he doesn't do this lightly with a kind of hand wave. But I would recommend the book God and Evil and the Theology of St. Thomas Aquinas by Herbert McCabe on this issue, which is really good. He wrote it as his STL thesis in like the 1950s, but he was a student of, well, he was a friend of Wittgenstein. And so his, his kind of like analytic clarity is to be envied. But then... Uh, maybe I should just leave off there because I am i was about to stop. Yeah. Keep talking. Well,
2: well I, I think that Aquinas and Augustine agree that God doesn't cause evil. Uh, I guess to me the difference is that when I read Augustine, it's like it's the reason that God, that Adam was able to sin was because of God's will of permission. Whereas Aquinas would say that God is good, so he gave Adam the gift of, of freedom, the ability of better or worse response to his command to not eat from the from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, to me, the, the it's not the diff- the difference isn't in if God caused evil or not. I think that they agree on that. The difference to me is where the gift of freedom came from. If it came from God's will of permission or if it came from God's attribute of goodness.
1: Yeah. So. So, certainly, I, I think it came from God's goodness from my reading of St. Thomas Aquinas. Right. Yeah. And I would suspect okay. that that's probably what St. Augustine says, too. And I'm, I'm guessing that Chesterton is doing a little bit of a hack job with respect to Chesterton, whom I love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but one of the things, like, yeah. I read Gary Goulagrange's commentary on St. Thomas's treatise on grace, and one of the lines that he takes from Augustine most often is, God would not have permitted evil unless he could draw from it some good. Right. So I think Augustine also has a kind of theological understanding that evil is part of what would you say? You know, like you have that line in the exultet from the Easter vigil, O oh happy, oh happy fault, right? Um, o oh blessed sin, which merited for us such grace, such a redeemer. This idea that in a certain sense, uh, things are better than they might have been otherwise. And this is just based on his reading of Romans 5, 12 through 21. You know, this idea like the how much more. Um, as if, you know, like as by the sin of the one man, you know, so all were subject to death. So by the grace which abounds from the one man. All have, you know, how much more, how much more, how much more. This idea of a kind of superabundance attendant upon our choice as God's like further manifestation of His glory for the sake of our salvation, and that's very Augustinian in its source. So I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know yeah, what Augustine says. Yeah, I agree says. that it's
2: yeah, I agree that it's Augustinian. I I've read some August Augustine, and I think that that's um, yeah, that's what I have the problem with. As you know, as I'm explaining, I I think that that's. There's a, there's a difference there that's a distinction that, that makes a difference. And yeah. I think, you know, like I say to Will, <laughs> I'll send him a quote from, from Aquinas, and I'll say, do you see the mistake that Augustine caused Aquinas to make?
0: <laughs> well, that's where, well, and I think that's where, I think the best way to put it is really that, like, right, it stems from the will of, like, the goodness of God, um, because it would mean that freedom is good. Um, and then I, I think that was, as far as natural evils and what and uh, pain and suffering, that's also part of the goodness of God where it allows us to have stellar character to overcome to to be better than the evil so that's a that's a whole other cadaard yeah so, so, so. <laughs> but, I, I, but that's always one of my things where I'm like well uh, what if there was no no uh, ability for us to have suffering, then I have no ability to rise above and become greater in character. Uh, I know through most yeah, it's of my like
2: soul building theology, right? Yeah yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, soul building. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, so I know we we're, we're. I told uh, Father Gregory here that we'd take only about an hour of his time. Oh, yeah. Um, so we have about an hour here. Um, I don't know how, what your time schedule is like right now. I think you just ate, ate your canapper. Uh, I, I did. I had a cannapper, uh, Yeah, I was getting a oh, cannapper. That's my Yankee coming out. Canapper. Ubu. Uh, okay. you, you you. Uh, All right. Can so, I ask? Let me ask one more question
2: on a completely different different topic. Um, yeah. So, because this has been eating at me for a month. So, let me let me just ask this. Um, you talked about. Um, that lying is always evil, you should, you should never lie. And you gave the example of if you were in the lowland countries and a soldier came to came to the door and said, Do, are you hiding Jews? And you had said that it would be wrong to say no, even if there were, and that would mean they'd be hauled out in the street and shot. So my question is this. If If I'm standing in the doorway and the soldier comes to my door and I know that if I answer anything other than no, he's going to pull these people out in the street and shoot them. Is it wrong to say, would you still say that it's wrong because the actual question he's asking me is, do you have Jews in your house that I can pull out in the street and shoot? So is it wrong that his actual question is, are you hiding Jews? And I answer no to that when his real, you know, do you see what I'm saying? I don't want to justify away, but is that still lying?
0: Wow. We just put him on the spot on a really tough question, bro.
2: Well, you know, he's, he's lectured on it, so I think he has an answer for me.
0: Oh, okay. All right. All right. I'll, yeah. let, him, I'll yeah. let him do his thing. I was just over here like, ouch. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So short answer is no. Long answer is um, I so I want to in this in this conversation, I want to just like encourage people in a variety of ways. One is I want to encourage people uh, to a kind of moral imagination, which looks beyond kind of what what some authors have called quandary ethics. This idea that, you know, morality is all about these difficult cases, which we think about and kind of do certain mental backflips when truth be told like most of morality is the other stuff that we kind of forget about the daily grind and i think that like truthfulness which st thomas identifies as a virtue a quasi potential part of justice one of the kind of building blocks of civil society is so very very foundational to human discourse that if we start making exceptions to truthfulness we really start undermining the very fabric of human integrity because if we make decisions as to like this person is worth the truth and this person is not or I can redefine the truth in this way or I can redefine it in this way. Not um, I think that we just find ourselves on very, very unstable footing. Um, and so you'll, you'll hear like Peter Craig, for instance, says you have a responsibility to lie, to tell a bold lie, to tell an outright lie. I just don't think that's the case, because if I'm going to tell a bold lie, an outright lie, an excellent lie in that moment, that means that I have to have some kind of moral formation, which has trained me to that point to be good at lying. And I am not good at lying. So I I will have had to do many, many lying exercises if I'm going to equip myself admirably as a liar in that moment. And I think that that means that my responsibility somehow to, becomes to become a liar, which is just strange and bizarre. And I just don't think that it's actually good for you know human flourishing to become that type of liar. The second thing is, I think that we find ourselves within a dispensation of providence. This is way beyond our competence in the sense that We often think about the world as if it were just a matter of like, what would you say? Optimizing or maximizing the consequences of decision. When truth be told, that's not our business. That's one of my favorite lines from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. The rest is not our business. What do we have competence over? As Princess Anna of Arendelle once sang in Frozen 2, to do the (laughs) next right thing. All right. So like that is the type of thing over which we have a modicum of competence by the grace which God gives. And I think that We need to be humble about the limitations of our providence, okay? That doesn't mean that we just shudder ourselves against the realities which lie beyond our immediate, you know, five-foot radius. But it doesn't mean that we think of ourselves as—I mean, very concretely, we can't begin to think of ourselves as engineers of reality who are producing good results. Because people who try to produce good results see them fail within their lifetime. But people who seek to be faithful find that God multiplies the work of their hands and makes something beautiful and glorious— but truth be told, this side of eternity, everything will fail except for the universal church. Everything that we set in place will fail. Everything, okay, in a certain limited way. So I just don't think it's for us to say, like, I have to, what, what do I have to do? I have to be faithful. The rest is not our business. And so when it comes to defending Jews, I think that, you, you know, like, you pray for the grace of prudence. You pray for the grace of counsel, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which perfects prudence, so that you can respond in such a way which is true, which clings to the truth, but which you know, does what is within your power to promote the well-being, the health, the flourishing, the goodness of those in your care. So if somebody comes to my, I don't know what I would say. Honestly, I have no idea what I would say because my heart would start racing and my, you know, like my stomach would be in my throat and I'd start sweating like a little monster because I have no moral formation for lying because it's not actually advantageous for me to become a saint. So when somebody knocks on my door, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit gives me the words, but what I would probably say, something along these lines would be like, uh, I mean, if you're going to look in my house, you're going to look in my house. I mean, this haggard, tall child is not going to get in your way. I haven't prevented anyone from doing anything in my whole life, okay? So if you want in, I mean, it's yours for the taking because I haven't lifted a weight since the sixth grade. You know, so it's just like, you, wh- like why are you trying to implicate me? And this is one of the arguments that St. Augustine gives in the De Mandacio. He says, wait, so we should, you know, like, prevent this attacker from not sinning by ourselves becoming sinners? He's like, what's the sense in that, Okay. All right. Now, do I think that I have to say, yes, there are seven Jews. They're located in my basement. You turn this knob, you open this door, you go through this priest hole and this cubby, and then you'll find them. No. All right. I'm not, I'm not responsible for telling everyone everything that's pertinent in every like, situation or circumstance. There is, a, there is a, a kind of legitimate place in the world for secrets and secrecy. So I hope, right? But if overcome in the moment and completely just like devastated by the anxiety that I feel, if I were to say like, no, okay, that's a venial sin, which is a sin analogically so-called by reference to mortal sin, which is sin in the strict sense. So it's like it's a light fault. And I think that we have the kind of moral taxonomy which accounts for the situation adequately, well and excellently while providing for our moral formation are becoming saints. Um, that is my response. That
2: is a beautiful sermon. Thank you. <laughs> I, I told you, I'm not a smart man. I was just corrected. So no, it's great. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. It is. It is
0: one of those tricky questions. I, I'm. I always. am yeah. curious of a theologian's response to that because it is. It is one of those wrestling questions.
2: Yeah, that was. Um, I've heard a
0: lot of people uh, wrestle that. So thank you uh, for your very honest uh, answer there, yes. Father Gregory.
1: Hey, if I find a theologian wandering around, I'll 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 have him <laughs> give you a response
0: <laughs> um so real quick before we close up shop in, in this episode here um back to divine simplicity we have straight um, yeah. yeah which i feel like is normal on the program working we're, we're going to do this and then we're like oh look rabbit trails and we hunt down the rabbit we kill it dead we skin it we, we put in our stew and then we're like wait what were we talking about how do we get here um so Back to divine simplicity real fast, at least in a tobistic sense. Yeah. Real quickly, can you um, tell us what are the biggest misunderstandings of it and yeah. where can
1: people get more information on it? Yeah. Biggest misunderstandings is that it makes God a kind of monolithic lunk. You're like, oh my gosh, God doesn't have any complexity. God doesn't have like any what would you say, like real attributes which pick out things which are distinct in the real order from his nature, that, that must make him like a kind of unwieldy rock. Um, when truth be told, it, I think it misdescribes the, death of Im, um, the depth of immaterial being, right? So like to be simple is actually to be more alive. Um, in, in the Neoplatonic description, you have this kind of Neoplatonic triad of esse vivere intelligere, and each describes a kind of intensification of being. So it's you know it's true of things that are that they have a kind of metaphysical dynamism, but it's it's yet more true of things that live that they have a metaphysical dynamism, and it's yet more true of things that understand that they have a metaphysical dynamism. And as you kind of deepen, 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 um, you don't arrive at God because God is not on any kind of scale, as it were, or spectrum, uh, but. You know, with this kind of logic, we can reason to a god who is most dynamic, right? Uh, who is most interactive? Uh, who is most engaged? Without himself becoming flat, monolithic, or otherwise boring. So I think, um, yeah, in, in Saint Thomas's description, you get a sense for the kind of uh, yeah for the kind of dynamism at the heart of the triune God. Because if he is. Um, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go. Go, go.
0: Oh, because if he has pure actuality, he, that means he is always an act. So he's not a lunk, as you have said. He's yeah. always interacting. Is that a
1: good word for it? That's a good
0: adjective? There's always yeah. interaction
1: there. So, yeah. Okay. Just he's want to al- make sure I'm tracking. He's always in second act. So St. Thomas draws a distinction between potency first act and second act. First act would be like initial realization, and second act would be actual exercise. So, like, for instance, I'm in potency to know something about great pandas. If I go on Wikipedia, right, and I learn some stuff about great pandas, cool, and then I go to sleep, I've got great panda knowledge in in first act. And then somebody (laughs) says, hey, do you know anything about great pandas? I'd be like, dude, let me tell you something about great (laughs) pandas. Now I have great panda knowledge in second act. So God is always and perpetually in second act, right? God is always banging on all cylinders because there's no limitation. God doesn't sleep. God doesn't tire. God does not grow weary. God is always holy and entirely engaged. And that's a kind of intra-Trinitarian engagement, okay? Um, which doesn't involve, like, again, any limitation or any potency or any mutability. But it's a kind of, it's a dynamism at the wellsprings of the divine life. And that spills over into creation and we partake of it. We share of it. So God's interaction with creation is of such a sort. And really what creation names is, is a relation of dependence of us upon him, which doesn't change God, but makes all the difference in our lives. So, yeah, and then with respect to places that you can read about it, I mean, the best treatise on the divine simplicity is in the Summa Theologiae. So it's Prima Pars, question three, uh, yeah, question three, articles one through eight. The whole thing is worth reading. Um, And St. Thomas has other treatments of it. And if you have a good edition of the Summa Theologiae, it shows you there's parallel treatments. I don't have them memorized offhand, so... Boom! <laughs> yeah.
0: Very good. Um, any any real quick thought? Because that was that's always the thing I hear. Basically, is that what yeah. makes God like uninteractive a, a, an and equate? And they make the mistake of equating God's love with wrath, because uh, they're like, oh, those attributes are the same and they're static. And it, we're we're saying that's not an attribute, right?
2: Right, wrath isn't an attribute; it's characteristic, right? Okay. That, like like Father Gregory said, nothing. God doesn't realize things. Nothing has ever occurred to God. I think of right, the end of he, the book of Job. You know, are you going to instruct? You know, God's saying to Job, "Are you going to instruct me?
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, I, I'm omniscient. What are you gonna? What are you gonna? You know, teach me that I can learn something. I already know everything."
0: Yeah, yeah. and then, um, oh, that real quick one last question. I apologize. This is going to yeah, get a little. Yeah. Uh, this one uh, right. gets a little bit more into Christology, I apologize. So one so people say all the time that there is uh, when I talked about, whenever divine simplicity comes up, the first thing the, the first thing comes up is the lunk kind of ideology um, and equating love and wrath. But then the next one is the incarnation of mm. of the sun. If there is no past potency in God, then how would one describe and explain the Incarnation? And that is my final question, I apologize. <laughs>
1: That's a great question. So the Incarnation is a kind of intensification of the metaphysics of creation. St. Thomas describes creation as a mixed relation. So God does not relate to creation, but creation relates to God. So creation is something real in creation. It's not something real in God, as if super added. So, like, when we say creation, we're describing a radical orientation of being, contingent being, towards or upon God. When we say creatures, we're, we're actually picking out those individual substances. When we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about a creation, all right? St. Thomas often describes it in terms of a recreation, which is language that he, attra- he attributes to grace. At first, it's like a little confusing because he says, I mean, the humanity of Christ can't actually be involved in the giving of grace on account of the fact that it's... It's a quasi-creative act, and there's no minister of creation. So God creates without any um, instrument or secondary cause or intermediator of any sort. But then he matures on that position. That's another conversation. Don't know why I brought it up. Muddy the waters. What a blessing. (laughs) Um, But when he talks about the metaphysics of the incarnation, he describes it basically as a relation on the part of the creature towards the Godhead, but it's not a relation on the part of the Godhead towards the creature, right? So it's a it's kind of choice on the part of God from all eternity, as it were, but with a temporal dispensation to operate in and through this chosen, adjoined or conjoined instrument, all right? Which is a created grace in the instrument itself. So the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ is wed or joined to the divine person by a created grace, which we just call the hypostatic union or the grace of union. And that grace uh, kind of resonates through or propagates through his humanity as a habitual grace and it propagates through the church what saint thomas calls capital grace um but it doesn't change god right so it's part of the plan of god it's part of the unchanging plan of god which unchanging plan accounts for change so yeah and a great place to read for that is of par's questions two through six which is a mini compact treatise on the metaphysics of the incarnation with all kinds of weird hypothetical questions posed along the way which is awesome like whether other members of the most blessed trinity could take a human nature he, he makes this awesome argument in question three article eight as to why it's most fitting that the sun take human nature it's awesome i just wrote a part of my dissertation on that article and i was like playing the metaphorical air guitar at my desk it was great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, good to know. So thank you for answering that. I mean, some of these questions are very complicated and deep. Uh, um, I had a... um, Oh, actually, you know what? I lied. I just realized you were not the first Catholic. We had Joshua Joshua on a while ago to debate uh, on baptism. Never mind, you're the second Catholic I've had on.
1: (laughs) First Catholic priest. Just, that is true. (laughs) Um, So,
0: (laughs) Um, now he, uh, well, one of the things that he, he, uh, to quote Joshua, he said, Theology is hard, and uh, is hard. and I think that's probably the best way to to wrap that up. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so but no, I've actually really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate the clarification.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: The detail as well was very helpful because you were actually referencing throughout how you're able to reference that. So I'm really decent at, uh, uh, and um, Jordan knows this. I teach a lot on like the legitimacy of of the New Testament historicity. There, I talk about. Um, uh, like philosophical arguments for God's existence. And I love having those types of conversations, but I cannot reference things like that where it's like this, 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 article that I'm like, wow. Okay. I am It's I, amazing. It yeah. was pretty fantastic. I'm impressed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I live under a rock and the only things under that rock are like sacred scriptures, the missile and the sum of theology. So there you go. And frozen too. And Frozen too. Let's go. (laughs) All right. Well,
0: with that being said, um, if somebody wants to hear more from you, where else can they find you?
1: Where else can they find me? I wrote a book. It's called Prudence, Choose Confident. What is it called? Choose Confidently, Live Boldly. And I actually Mm -hmm. think it's pretty good, which I would say of like four things that I've done in my life. And one of them was an art project in fourth grade, where I did a transformation picture from an elephant into a baseball mitt. And I was like, that is really nice. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I think the book's actually pretty good. So that, and then I contribute to the podcast God So G O D S P L A I N I N G available wherever podcasts are served. And then you should come to the retreat this summer, one of the retreats this summer. So we have one for all comers, one for young adults, and then a young men's wilderness retreat. Um, and those are in New York, New York, and then North Carolina, respectively, end of July, beginning of August. So lots of opportunities to sit out, drink beer, smoke cigars, and chat theology. So all good things. Oh, those sound fantastic.
0: Mm. <laughs> <The best>. um, <laughs> bless. All right. And of course, uh, you, you've you been on Pints with Aquinas many, many times. So uh, thank you so much, Father Gregory Pine. Everyone go check out his book if you're curious. Um, all my evangelical and Protestant friends. I hope you guys can realize the fact that uh, um, not all Catholics are these evil people hiding behind a, a okay. closet, jumping out, trying to trying to murder all of your... Okay, that's creepy. <laughs> Never mind. I recant everything. Yeah. And for those of our audio listeners, uh, Father Gregory just made a really funny face. Yeah. Um, but uh, I hope everyone can realize that we can have great conversations. There's actually things to be learned um, on various sides of various aisles. And this is what the church split exists for, is to actually unite the divided body by discussing things unapologetically and um, just and be, uh, be in fellowship with one another. So with that being said, thank you all for checking out the church split. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Uh, let us know your thoughts of divine simplicity in the comments below. And with that, take care and God bless.